Hi, I'm Kathy Walker, teacher, feminist and parent, and this is Raise Her Up, a podcast from the GDST, the UK's leading family of girls' schools. With 19,000 students across 25 schools and the largest women's alumni network of its kind, we are experts in girls' education and everything that goes with it. Even as a teacher with over 20 years experience of working with young people and as a mum of two girls, I am still learning every day. I think we all are. In each episode, we'll welcome an expert guest who will address a different topic that, as modern parents, we are bound to encounter at some point. In this episode, I'm talking to author, filmmaker and campaigner Kate Muir. Menopause causes a huge brain drain of women at work in women's 50s. Around maybe 10% of women change their jobs at that point. And we suddenly see the boardroom looking a lot less female and also the gender pay gap increases too. Kate produced the now famous Channel 4 Davina Menopause documentary, which has been viewed over 2.5 million times. Last autumn, she was part of a Make Menopause Matter rally in Parliament Square to support the menopause bill to demand free prescriptions for HRT in England. From the GDST, this is Raise Her Up, and this is Kate Muir. Kate, thank you so much for joining us on this very special and important episode. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on here. And my daughter also went to one of these schools, so I'm really pleased to be back. Brilliant. So tell us, what was behind the documentary? What was the catalyst for you? The catalyst was my own menopause chaos. Uh, my own menopause was not just a car crash, but a full Thelma and Louise off the cliff job. <laughs> and I am an investigative journalist. I've worked for the Times for years. I really knew how to find things out. And I was unable to find out enough about my own menopause and about hormone replacement therapy, which I discovered I really, really needed. And in particular, it affected my brain and it gave me heart palpitations. And I I went to my GP a couple of times and I didn't really get any help. Um, and then I went privately because I was a bit desperate and I got quite dodgy HRT. I had a bit of trouble with that for a year and then got the, the proper stuff. And the fact that that struggle took me where I had to go, which was this doctor called Louise Newson, who runs the biggest menopause clinic in Britain and is a huge menopause campaigner. And as I was sitting in her surgery, she told me a story which changed my life and I think has changed a lot of other people's lives through the documentary in the book, which was a woman who in perimenopause, which are the years before menopause and usually in your late 40s, had suddenly had terrible, terrible depression and anxiety and couldn't leave the house. And she went on every antidepressant there was and she was diagnosed with impossible depression. There was nothing anybody could do about it. So they sent her for 12 sessions of electroconvulsive therapy wow. when they shoot, you know, electricity across your brain in a mental hospital as an outpatient, sent her back home. And she basically sat in her chair for seven years and got really, really at one point almost suicidal and decided that she was going to look up everything she could find about menopause and depression. And she realized the depression could be hormonal. And she managed to, because she couldn't leave the house, they uh, mortgaged their house and they took uh, an RV, a caravan to Louise Newson's surgery, got her into the clinic. She got hormones, she got HRT, 
Seven days later, she walked her dog for the first time outside in seven years. Her depression had been completely hormonal. And Louise told me that story. And I had no idea that menopause had this amazing effect on your brain. And that became an incredibly important discussion, which we brought up in the documentary. And lots of women talked about the effect mentally on them, because we all know about hot flushes and the jokes about hot flushes. But estrogen has this very important job to do in your brain. So that's how it began. So there is this um, thread running through your work on the menopause about this lack of information. Can you remind us of some of the most hard-hitting facts and figures around menopause for those listeners who haven't perhaps seen the documentary yet? So menopause causes a huge brain drain of women at work, and particularly in the kind of amazingly high-end jobs that some of the girls and women uh, and mothers at the Girls Day School Trust are going out to do there in the world, um, you find that in women's 50s, they start to fall out of those positions. And there's a real disappearance. Around maybe 10% of women change their jobs at that point. A lot of them go part-time, a lot turn down promotion. And we suddenly see the boardroom looking a lot less female than it was for a while. And also the pay gap increases too, the gender pay gap. And it's partly because women are having trouble with brain fog, anxiety, depression, stress, all of which happen when estrogen leaves the brain in the late 40s, early 50s in the average woman. And it takes a long time to get over those changes. And some women never get over them. And I was one of those women that really, really couldn't cope. And I've coped with everything my whole life. But suddenly I could not deal with what was happening to my brain in menopause. I was writing a shopping list. I thought, must shave my legs. Wrote down the word shaver. Couldn't remember the word razor. And because my mum died of Alzheimer's, I was very aware of her losing nouns. You know, it wasn't like, you know, I was a film critic at the time. I could remember names of lots of film directors, lots of producers, all those kind of things. But this was a noun. And I was absolutely terrified when I forgot an ordinary word. It never happened to me before. And I went then and got HRT privately because I really, really panicked. And within about a week, I could feel the difference, not just in my hot flushes, but in my brain. And I could remember all the things I needed to remember. So I think for some women, it may not be all, some can cope, but for some women, it is so important to give us our hormones back. And I needed that to function in my job. And I would not have made two documentaries and written a book, I don't think, without being on HLT. So, I mean, it is a significant equality issue, isn't it? If it is taking women out of the workplace and it is lowering those numbers of women in the boardroom, there is that imperative as well, isn't there, about talking about this issue? It's a huge equality issue. It's one of the things feminism should absolutely be tackling right now. Um, what has happened for years and years is that medical sexism has just put older women aside. And okay, there are a bunch of problems that we treat and they get osteoporosis and they fall out of their jobs. And, you know, they're older women, so they don't matter. But now that we're going to retire much later, that we're doing our career in our 50s, 60s, 70s, it is really important that we are firing on all cylinders. And basically, the interpretation of 
the papers and the science around HRT, and this is very important, is way out of date. 20 years ago, there was a huge study on HRT in America, which was on the old kind of HRT, which is a combined pill made out of synthetic drugs and sometimes horse urine, estrogen extracted from horse urine. Okay, not a great combination. If you told any 12-year-olds, do you want the drugs with the horse urine and the synthetic stuff, or do you want the stuff made from yams, which is body identical, and it's transdermal, and you rub it through your skin? Any 12-year-old will go, I'll go for the natural stuff. And uh, that's what's extraordinary about this, is we are still relying on the old science, on the older drugs. And when anyone talks about HRT, they go, it causes breast cancer. Well, no, the old HRT had a small, small, small risk of breast cancer. The new HRT, as far as we know, does have no risk of breast cancer over five years, perhaps a tiny amount over 10. But guess what? Nobody's bothered to study it because nobody's put up the money to study the new forms of HRT, except in France. And they've done three good studies in France, which are incredibly positive about the new body identical HRT, which is available on the NHS. Um, But because Big Pharma is not going to make a lot of money because they can't patent a hormone because a hormone's in your body. It's a natural thing and you can get it really, really cheaply. Um, There's no reason for them to concoct some vast drug that will cost £9,000 a year like they do for osteoporosis because my HRC probably costs the NHS maybe £120 a year. And, you know, it makes me a functioning human being. And that's a really, really, that's a bargain, isn't it, really? 120 quid to actually be able to get out of bed in the morning. I think that is a bargain, yeah. Um, Let's talk again about this medical sexism, um, which I find mind-blowing, really. Women have been going through the menopause for centuries and centuries. Why are we seeing a cultural shift now? And is this happening across the world? How does the UK compare with its efforts and its paradigm shift? I think we're seeing a shift because Generation X are coming into the menopause. And we all grew up as feminists. We all worked hard. We all went to, you know, university or school or whatever. And we all expected to be equal with men. And suddenly this thing happens to you and you think, oh, this is stopping me doing the things I want to do. And, you know, I really, really need help. Why? And we've been so used to kind of getting our act together that, you know, this came as a real shock, certainly to me, because I was just used to plowing on. And suddenly there was this wall I had to climb over. And I think we've realized we can do something about it, whether it be HRT or other remedies for symptoms, but we do not need to live with these symptoms day in and day out. And that we need to tell people about them and not be ashamed because it's so connected to aging and being an old crone and being a witch and being eccentric and bad tempered and difficult. And, you know, there's all that cultural baggage around, you know, you're no longer fertile. Why should we care what you think? Well, there's definitely that culture that, you know, we there is that pressure to remain youthful. And I think, as you said, that's why when celebrity women come out and speak about this, it is so powerful. It has such impact. If you look at the UK, we are brilliant. We have people like Davina McCall and, you know, Gabby Lurgan, the sports presenter, Lorraine Kelly on TV, uh, Kirsty Walk, you know, news presenter, lots and lots of proper people and people in the city now starting to talk about it and talk about it in public and be utterly honest about how they failed and how they sorted it out. And 
It is so not happening in America. We don't talk about that. And there's no public debate. No, 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 no. And certainly we'd never say anything about that in the boardroom. And, and you know, the idea that we bring this up at big company meetings and say we need to help women with the menopause, that is absolutely not happening over here. Whereas here, I think on World Pause Day, 300 big companies like Marks and Spencer and Tesco and things like that signed up to pledge to have menopause policies. So we are doing really, really well and we should be really proud. It's a big, big movement that takes in, I think, doctors, you know, celebrities, journalists, lots and lots of ordinary women who want to have this conversation in kind of menopause cafes or in groups. And I feel like we've released a sort of, you know, a menopausal dragon. (laughs) So this culture shift we've been talking about, does that extend to the workplace? Tell us a bit about the typical workplace response to issues related to the menopause. You've mentioned Marks and Spencer's. Yeah, well, there's there's two things happening here. I mean, the change is just happening right now. So it's hard to work out exactly what's going on. But all the big companies have got their HR people to get a big menopause policy out there that says, we will pay attention. We will make um, reasonable adjustments if you need a break if you need to go and have a shower, if you need to wear a slightly different uniform because you're getting hot, we will fix you up with that. What they also need to do and what is not clear about these policies is give women the medical information on dealing with their symptoms. We don't need to live with these symptoms. 90% of us do not need to live with them. And it's very important that it's just not a lovely policy on their app or on their website, but that people go in and speak to groups of women and say, here are your options. You do not need to live like this. And you will work better if you look into these options as a way of dealing with your symptoms. And also just letting people discuss their symptoms in public at work makes them kind of go away in some way. You know, you have an occasional hot flush, but, you know, so do 20 other people. So who cares? Whereas before it was a joke, it was an embarrassment, it was a humiliation. And I think if we sort of go into a sort of menopause power mode as opposed to menopause shame, I think that's very important. And it's exactly what's happened with younger women in periods, that we have period power instead of period shame. And I think we're learning a lot from that younger generation. Um, I'm certainly, my daughter's about to be 22 And she came up through that kind of period power generation and her attitudes are completely different. And it's been quite educational for me. In each episode of Raise Her Up, we hear from a member of our GDSC family to gain their perspective on the matter at hand. Today, we hear from Julie Keller, who is head teacher at Nottingham Girls High School. I remember sitting at a conference in 2019. I was heavily pregnant at the time and I was listening to a talk about the menopause. I couldn't help reflecting on the adjustments that had been made for me as a pregnant woman at work and the openness with which I was able to talk about everything I was feeling. I realised there was a gap in my wellbeing strategy for my staff at Nottingham Girls High School. I work with many women and yet we'd rarely spoken about the menopause. This realisation inspired me to develop a menopause policy and just as importantly to develop a culture of openness and support about it. The policy aims to ensure all employees feel valued through all their life stages, to make sure women feel supported and they're able to find the help and support that they need. It was something I wanted all staff to learn about, including the men who wanted to be able to support their colleagues, as well as the women in their lives outside of work. We're a school that is proud to be experts in educating girls, so it's vital that we also understand women. It's vital that we ensure our female colleagues feel able to continue and join their professional lives. With understanding, empathy and some reasonable adjustments, 
there is every reason for them to do so. How do we make the menopause relevant to teenagers who are going to face these issues, aren't they? But I guess when they're that far away, you just kind of think, well, I don't need to think about this yet. One in 100 uh, women has menopause under 40. And we interviewed a, a woman in the documentary who had her menopause at 14. Her period started, they ended, and she's been on HRT ever since and actually has adopted a baby uh, recently. So there is a real kind of change, but it's very, very important. I think young women are feminists and believe in equal rights and believe in intersectionality. They're, they're quite, they really are on it. And, and I think menopause should be easy for them to get. And, and it certainly is for, for my, my daughter and her friends. They're like, oh, well, thank God you've had this conversation because now we don't need to have it. You know, they're really relieved that we've thrown it out there and started talking about it. But it was not taught in the school curriculum until now. It's still not taught in biology properly. All you get is periods in biology. You don't really know what happens to them later on, but it gets taught, and I think it's PHSE, uh, as part of the general kind of wellness, health, sex sort of section of the curriculum. Uh, that shouldn't be really, it should be part of biology too, shouldn't it? And the idea that we teach people that periods start, but we don't reveal that they end at any point is bonkers. Uh, so we need to do that. We need to talk about it and we need to look into the medical future around menopause. Because it is really, really exciting. What is exciting about this story? It is all about medical good news of an extraordinary importance to older women. And one of the things is that um, estrogen protects you from osteoporosis. One in two women get osteoporosis. So they're all out there breaking their hips, age 80 and 70. They don't need to. And so many women die after breaking their hips. And so many people are immobilized and in care homes. And if you have osteoporosis, your risks are so high of that happening. And HRT helps you rebuild bone and keeps your bones strong and dense. And if we can give women the good HRT, wow, these kind of breaks when someone just trips over the cat or something, you know, and normally you think you just bounce up, but you know, something terrible happens. The other thing I'm really interested in is what's happening in the brain in terms of estrogen. And there's this woman in America called Lisa Mosconi, and she's written the XX brain and done a number of scans of women's brains in perimenopause and postmenopause and also premenopause. And we see that in perimenopause, as the estrogen goes down, the grey matter and the white matter in the brain go down, and so does the use of glucose. It is really shocking, this descending graph of what's happening in your brain. And then once menopause is settled and over, the grey matter starts to come back. Lots of the white matter doesn't seem to come back at all. What happens is most women pump more blood to their brain and use more energy after menopause. So basically, the brain is rewiring itself as it does in pregnancy. And we haven't realized that there's a second rewiring of our brains. And that's kind of amazing, too, and what we do with that. But for people like me who probably have the Alzheimer's gene from our mother, um, it's really important I keep my brain in good health. And having estrogen every day in my brain, the way it would be when I was sort of 49, and I'm now 57, is very, very important. You know, I don't get those memory lapses. I don't get those, those losses. 
And I really, really think, and we've looked at lots of the studies, that giving women estrogen and testosterone, actually, also a female hormone, around the time of menopause and perimenopause is very important for preserving the brain. And if we can get that news out to the world, and one in five women get Alzheimer's, right? One in 11 men, one in five women. What is that telling you? We really, really might change the future for older women. So this is like an extraordinary gift we have, you know? It's it's really, really exciting. It seems utterly absurd that we have not known this before now. Absurd and also maddening and infuriating. You know, think about the impact of Alzheimer's and osteoporosis on people's lives and also the, the financial implications of that for the state. This is surely a win-win situation. I can do the financial implications. Hip replacement, £15,000. A year in a home with Alzheimer's, £40,000. As I said before, HRT, £120 a year. You put that into the NHS budget, the economists would love you. But they don't because nobody has looked at the research. They don't believe the research is good enough. They want, you know, huge randomized controlled trials, but they're just not there. And I think we have to go with what we've got. And, you know, someone said, you know, you've got the choice of this probably being good or, you know, waiting 10 years for someone to do a trial. What what am I going to do? What are all women going to do? You know, bonkers. Well, older women, as you say, are just not a priority, which, again, is utterly um, infuriating. So in terms of the cost, I mean, you have campaigned to reduce prescription charges for HRT. Where, where are we with that? Um, it's not gone through yet, but it should be one prescription charge a year, which should be around £9. Uh, so that should be it. So women who were struggling to pay up to £200 for progesterone and oestrogen, so there are two prescriptions, uh, should find it easier. So in Scotland, Wales and England, we should get virtually free HRT, which is which is brilliant. It's so discriminatory against over half of the population. Yeah. And also class-wise and in terms of certain um, ethnic minority communities, they are not getting enough information on HRT. Um, and also, you know, in, in some languages, I've been talking to a doctor called Dr. Nigat Arif, who was in the first documentary, and she speaks Urdu and Punjabi to her clients as well. And uh, there's just no word for menopause in Urdu. So there's, you know, no longer on the rag is basically the nearest thing we have to the word for menopause. If there's no word for this thing that happens to you, how do you know it's happening? And how do you know you're not crazy? You know, and so it is really important that we don't just make this a menopause so quite ladies thing, but that because this movement is beginning, it will begin in a much wider way and hopefully go out to different communities. And that is one of the things we're trying to do in the documentary is that Davina speaks to a really wide range of people. And, you know, there are people who watch Long Lost Family, people who watch Big Brother. They're not people going, oh, I want to know the science about menopause necessarily. But they love it when she kind of explains it to them. And it's such an emotionally powerful thing to be able to say, you know, it's basically take up thy bed and walk. It's like, you know, women have stiff joints. You know, they can't run anymore. And suddenly... You know, they can if they use estrogen. And you you realize that, you know, every sentence, if someone passes it on, can make a huge difference to one woman and then 10 women and then 20. And, and, you know, even doing a podcast like this, there'll be somebody who hears it and says, oh, I'll tell my mum that or I'll tell my grandma. We're a wonderful kind of spreading kind of 
a good virus, you know? I certainly hope so. Um, let me go back to what you were talking about before, about, about, you know, we are on a continuum. We start our periods, we have babies, we have our periods again, we eventually go into menopause. Women are having babies later, so their menopause is often coinciding with their children's teenage years. Is, is this a, a relatively new, perhaps additionally stressful aspect to consider? Yeah, I think, I think that's very, very true. I have a 16-year-old, actually. And uh, it is very, very different. There's the stress of looking after aged parents, working full time, having teenagers, having teenagers that slam doors and, you know, starting to have menopause symptoms at the same time or perimenopause. And obviously that stress, you just think I'm stressed because I'm being superhuman at this point. And you don't realize that some of that is menopause. And this is what happens is that women just break down. You know, we literally, our engine goes in our late 40s, early 50s, if we don't get help and if we don't talk to other people about what's happening and ask to share those burdens a bit more with with other people, I think. The parenting menopause sort of crisis is a new thing and it's a new experience that we need to kind of talk through together and share and kind of support one another. We just expect to cope. I just expected to cope, you know, and I had three kids and, you know, a mother with Alzheimer's and a full-time job and I was traveling. I'm not surprised I sort of, you know, exploded, you know, when you think about it. But if people have not been speaking about this so openly up to now, you assume that everybody else is just getting on with it. Yeah. And the divorce rate at this point, because relationships just crash on this. As you know, your hormones go down, you're no longer so filled with the loving, caring kind of sexual hormones that you were filled with. You're very, very angry indeed. And, you know, you've been holding on to this marriage or relationship and keeping it going and looking after kids. And at a certain point, you just think, oh, my God, I just want to be on my own. <laughs> and, you know, 62% of divorces are instigated at that period of time by women. And there's a huge peak of divorce in the time of perimenopause, which is when your hormones go up and down like anything, but you don't necessarily know what's going on because you've still got your periods. So it's a real sort of red flag danger time that none of us recognize, none of us saw. And it's really important, you know, and it affects whole families. And, you know, this menopause, this tiny thing explodes into this huge disaster for people. Um, so we, I think we've established uh, through our discussion that we live in a world where the majority of decision makers, those with the power, especially in medicine, are men. So how have you engaged with men? Are there any prominent so-called uh, man-ambassadors in this area? Well, a lot of the obstetricians and gynecologists at places like the British Menopause Society are very good. Uh, Nick Panay, who uh, was in our last documentary from the British Menopause Society, he's super. Uh, there's also a marvellous guy called Dr. Isaac Manyonda, who is the expert in Britain at the moment about testosterone in women. We just assumed it was a male hormone, that they kept it themselves and they had lots of muscles absolutely wrong. So it's it's our main hormone, bigger than estrogen. And as we enter our sort of 40s, 50s, it starts slowly to go down. It doesn't fall off the cliff like the other two hormones. But in my case, I had none. I had none by the time I was 50. I was just empty of testosterone. And testosterone is massively important for energy, libido, and memory as well. Very important for memory. And so having your brain ticking over at speed is often, you know, helped by 
supplementing testosterone for women like me who didn't have enough. And it makes a real difference. It is available on the NHS if you go in and say there's something wrong with your libido. But you're not supposed to have it for energy or brain, obviously, because that hasn't been properly researched yet. But women are allowed to ask if their marriages are not going well, they can ask for testosterone under the NHS guidelines. But it's really difficult to get. You've got to probably get a referral to a menopause clinic. And it could be one of those things, again, which is given out cheaply in tiny amounts to people. And it takes their testosterone back to the levels they had when they were 45. So it's not like we're growing a moustache but that we will go back to the normal levels of testosterone we had. And you think about my daughter, she would have twice the level of testosterone at 22 that I have at, you know, 40 or whatever. So, you know, testosterone is an ordinary female hormone. And here's some so sexist. Makes me so angry that we're not know that. Oh, absolutely. But it has echoes of how readily available Viagra is, you know, when it comes to libido, that being the influencing factor. Kate, your book, Everything You Need to Know About the Menopause, What We're Too Afraid to Ask, came out in January. Were you concerned about sharing your own personal journey or is that the key, you know, to stop this secrecy and shame? I found when I was researching the book, I'd written a much more kind of academic book with lots more footnotes and there are lots of science papers and footnotes, but I I was holding back because I'm a journalist and I am the person who asks the questions. And then when I was talking to women, I would tell women my own story and then they would tell me their story back and then their story would get bigger and my story would get bigger. And I realized that this time I was both a journalist and a patient and a human being. And so I put myself in the book, Um, you know, everything went wrong. (laughs) You know, I got divorced. My mum died of Alzheimer's. Uh, You know, my dog died. You know, I was living on my own in a flat and, you know, seeing my children part of the week. It all rose out of kind of menopause symptoms. And I just didn't realize that at the time. And also menopause, I think, brings up past traumas. Not that I had any serious past traumas, but it brings up all the stuff you've been holding down. And if you've been holding down, you know, I looked after my mum as she died of Alzheimer's over 10 years. And, you know, my dad died before that with various strokes. And, you know, I was the person as an only child going up and dealing with that and then dealing with my family. I just think, you know, you feel that kind of knot inside you just sort of bursting. And I think it happens to, to so many women. And I felt this intense relief about writing about myself in the book in a very careful way. And I did show it to my children and my partner, my new partner now, uh, so they could see what I'd written because I didn't want to write anything that would embarrass them. But I think it's really, really important to be honest. And I think the thing about menopause is it's so different for everybody and everybody has to tell their story. And then the next person says, but ah, that's not my story. Here's my story. And women are brilliant at storytelling and we're brilliant at making it funny. And I think if we can have this conversation, you know, in pubs, then that's brilliant. And we should have the conversation with men and they should laugh too. And we should make that sort of connection. And, and I just uh, recently, for the new documentary, I interviewed a stand-up comedian called Bridget Christie, who does a whole kind of set on the menopause. And her set opens with her coming on stage and she gets the microphone and she doesn't say anything for about a minute. And the audience squirms. And then she said, oh, that was menopausal brain fog. And then she starts talking. And she does great stuff about menopausal anger as well. And it's a male and female audience listening to it. They're all laughing. And that's where we begin, publicly sharing like that quite bravely. It can be incredibly empowering to find the humour in something, can't it? 
And I mean, menopause is very funny and embarrassing, <laughs> you know, and when you do forget things, it, it, you know, it's quite amusing. And I also find the community of menopausal women fantastic, the, the menopause warriors, as we call them, because I'm involved with the menopause charity. And, you know, just even going to the demonstration last year, in Parliament Square, making signs the day before, like a sort of, you know, 18-year-old that said, votes for menopausal women. And, you know, standing there in Parliament Square, holding a votes for women kind of poster and people shouting with megaphones and wearing T-shirts. And, you know, there's a real kind of mad, youthful kind of moment. It's very joyful because these are women who've worked out what's wrong with them and want to help other people. And, you know, that's a very simple thing. You know, we've solved the problem. Now we're going to help you. And you feel this incredible duty to pass on your knowledge uh, just to people you meet in cafes or the post office. You know? What are your top piece of advice for women listening to this, thinking, fearing that their life as they know it is over? And, and what about for their families? What can dads, husbands, um, sons do to show solidarity? I think one of the things I would do is get informed. And there are brilliant ways of being informed. And one of the best websites is called the Balanced Menopause website, which has been done by Dr. Louise Newton. It's far better and I have to say more accurate than the NHS website and more up to date. And it really, really has a library. And you can go in and look in the library for the specific thing you want. So that is really useful. And there's also a balance app, which is free, which you can track symptoms. But I mean, what I think men and women just need to talk to one another, like they talk about everything else. And this should just be an ordinary part of conversation. And hopefully, you know, Men and women sat down together and watched our documentary and, you know, learned from it together on their sofa. And I think, you know, if menopause pops up in films and TV and cartoons, then it will become just an easy part of our culture that we know about. And it's not a big deal. And I think that will really, really, really help. And I think men can be incredibly sympathetic about this and incredibly helpful. You just need to ask and you need to be brave enough to ask. Kate, thank you so much for giving us your time. Thank you. And Kate's book, Everything You Need to Know About the Menopause But We're Too Afraid to Ask, is out now. Thank you for listening to this episode of Raise Her Up from the GDST. To hear all the experts we have on this series, and to make sure you don't miss one, please subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, if you could leave a review and a five-star rating, it'll help other parents and carers to find the podcast so they can listen and learn too. Join me on the next episode of Raise Up from the GDST, where I'll be talking to Dr. Tara Porter, clinical psychologist and author of You Don't Understand Me, The Young Woman's Guide to Life. At this age, what we're going through is an evolutionary drive for teenagers to separate from their parents, to individuate, to start making their own lives. Their friends are going to be their peers throughout their lives. Amongst the people of their age are the people they will be future working with, people they fall in love with, they make their lives with. I sometimes say to parents, you know, you're the wallpaper on their life and they want you in the background and not too obtrusive. I'll see you then.